0: by the Fire Podcast presents The Heart Speaks. Written and performed by Dave Smale. Chapter 15, Oh Happy Day. Eighteen months later, Tyrone stood at the head of a gathering in the Virginia Beach Psychiatric Center's lobby. In his hand was a massive bouquet of tiger lilies. In a few minutes, the buzzer would sound, and the door to the patient rooms would swing open. Only this time, he wasn't entering. No one was. Someone was exiting. Keisha was being released five months early, having completed her treatment. Around him were Keisha's pastor, his wife, Sister Joy, Keisha's half-sister, and her mother, Regina, and her husband. Keisha's sentence had been suspended at the recommendation of the judge, who'd based her recommendation on the psych center's staff report. In short, the report said that Keisha had progressed better than any patient they'd seen in the past 10 years. It noted Keisha's continued support from family and friends greatly contributed to her success. And by family and friends, they meant Tyrone, the Turners, and Sister Joy. Her half-sister and mother had only visited twice each. Her support included dozens of hours of counseling and prayer with the Turners and Tyrone. The result of Tyrone going to see her quote, two more times before he filed any paperwork. It hadn't been smooth sailing. Much had come out in the wash. Tyrone told her how he really felt. He'd resented her for years. Her diva behavior, laziness, and weight gain. And he admitted he was wrong for never saying anything about it. Keisha spilled the details about the affair she'd been carrying on for over three years. The other guy was a smooth talker she'd met on Facebook. She'd been planning to leave Tyrone for him whenever the other guy expressed his intention of staying with her, but he never did. The relationship ended after Jella's death. The guy simply stopped answering her calls and texts. Except for one final text he'd sent which was only a link to the news report showing Tyrone beating up the murderous criminal. She'd been watching it when Tyrone came home that day after being fired. It was part of the reason Keisha had acted so insane in the wake of the murder. Not only had she lost her daughter, but was subsequently rejected by the guy who supposedly loved her. Tyrone learned much about Keisha during the counseling sessions but he learned even more about himself. For instance, he'd found out that he was a type B personality. Life happened to him. All he did was react. He wasn't purposeful or assertive and had lost his ambition long ago. In short, despite his impressive physique and decent police salary, he'd become undesirable as a husband. Thanks to Tyrone's newfound faith in Jesus and the counseling support from the Turners, he'd forgiven Keisha, going so far as to take responsibility for driving her into the arms of another. Keisha said she figured he was likely cheating on her as well, but as it turned out, that was only a justification for her own affair, conjured up by her guilty conscience. Though her assumption wasn't completely baseless. She thought Tyrone would have met someone at the gym by now, as much as he went. He told her how close he'd gotten to taking up Alondra on her lunch offer before he knew she was blocking him from seeing Keisha. He still didn't know why she'd been doing that. Alondra had since disappeared, not that he was pursuing her. It didn't matter now. In the end, Keisha and Tyrone had forgiven each other. They'd chose to put everything behind them including the death of their daughter not that they'd no longer care but they wouldn't allow the bitter situation to consume them they settled that one day god would reveal the truth to them whether it happened on this side of heaven or the other the buzzer sounded the door opened vibrant beautiful and 60 pounds lighter keisha walked through the door to claps cheers and tears There were embraces and sobs for several minutes as she was enveloped by her family. That's what she considered them now, even those not of blood relation. They were family. They'd come to see her in her darkest hour. They'd held her, prayed for her, prayed with her, cried with her. The group left the psych center in a small convoy of vehicles. They enjoyed lunch at the place Keisha requested, Cracker Barrel. Strangely, there hadn't been any reporters in the parking lot to cover the story of Keisha's amazing recovery and release from treatment. Then again, maybe it wasn't so strange. They'd stopped bothering Tyrone more than a year ago when he'd told a reporter Keisha was getting better. It seemed, once the well of bad news dried up, they'd moved on. They simply weren't interested in good news. After lunch, Keisha wanted to go home. All the excitement and public socializing had worn her out. She'd have to get used to the real world again. This podcast is sponsored, in part, by Fiverr. Fiverr is an online marketplace for freelance services. Click the affiliate link in the show notes, and if you purchase anything from Fiverr, you're not just supporting freelance small business owners. You're also helping to support the spreading of the gospel all around the world through Christian Fellowship Ministries, to stop human trafficking through Operation Underground Railroad, and getting Bibles and supplies to the persecuted church through Voice of the Martyrs. Fiverr, it starts here. Due to the lack of police work done during the official investigation, there hadn't been any significant developments in Jella's murder case. Tyrone could only give Holloman everything he recalled, mostly information passed to him by Jerry. The only real suspect, in Tyrone's opinion, was Kron, the man who'd been babysitting on the night of Jella's abduction. Holloman had done a deep dive into the man's past, but only found the same information Tyrone had already relayed to him. However, Kron had since been kicked out of his house and had been off-grid for months. So he's a person of interest in my book, Holloman had said. But if there was nothing in the police file, where did all the info about Kron's past come from? Tyrone had no answer other than he'd received it from Jerry. Holloman had no other leads, except one. One which he'd followed up on shortly after accepting the pro bono case. He'd tracked down the phone records that showed the date, time, and location from which the anonymous call had been made to the crime line reporting Jella Bowman's body. The phone number was traced to an old payphone, a practical relic, that still stood outside of a 7 Eleven near the crime scene. Holloman assumed the call would have come from someone who either didn't have access to a smartphone or didn't want the call being traced to them. And since Jella's body was discovered in a field, Holloman presumed the caller to be a vagrant. Holloman even opined that the caller might be the perpetrator. It wasn't uncommon for homeless people to sleep in open fields, especially in tall grass. Holloman had been back to the crime scene numerous times, finding traces of campsites, but no people. He'd been to local shelters and spoken with more homeless men and women than he could count. On a few occasions, he'd spoken with people who'd heard about the little girl's body in the field, but had no other information. After a few months, the lead went cold. The mystery of who made the call remained. Both Holloman and Tyrone thought it might be the key to the case whomever made the call might have seen something perhaps a glimpse of whoever dumped the body even a vague description would be better than nothing after much soul searching prayer conversation and tears tyrone and keisha had requested that holloman cease his investigation he'd agreed but told them he'd never truly stop if he came across a potential piece of evidence he wouldn't hesitate to contact them. Reluctantly, they'd agreed to those rather bleak terms. Tyrone and Keisha, with the help of their pastor and new church family, decided that whoever was responsible for their daughter's death, they'd forgive them, if for no other reason than to move on with their lives. After all, they were still young. Perhaps they could even get pregnant again. Summer was in full swing. Virginia Beach sweltered with temperatures in the 90s and humidity at 100%. Tyrone's new career as a janitor slash landscaper slash gym teacher at Bright Horizons Elementary was going extremely well, albeit slow since school was out for summer. He'd implemented a successful regimen of exercise and sports between bathroom cleanings, lawn mowing, and equipment repairs. The kids seemed to love Mr. Bowman, His colleagues, however, were less than welcoming. Once word got out as to who he was, the cop who beat the guy nearly to death on camera, the stigma followed him all over campus. Two of the teachers were so upset by his hiring, they'd given the principal an ultimatum, he goes or we go. Principal Glenda Pershing told them she had no intention of firing Tyrone. Those teachers quit on the spot And at least four more quit in the following weeks. Glenda had encouraged Tyrone to pursue a teaching credential. He took her advice. Through night classes at the local community college and CLEP tests, Tyrone earned his associate's degree in only four months. He'd immediately enrolled at Norfolk State University for his bachelor level coursework. According to his academic advisor, he'd be done in 12 months, which meant he only had one month to go. In the meantime, Pershing had assigned Tyrone to one of her seasoned teachers as a student teacher. Using this loophole, he'd get classroom time under his belt without a credential, on-the-job training, or OJT as he'd called it in his cop days. The teacher with whom he was partnered was not on board with Pershing's plan. Frida DePaulo, the crotchety, dull, gray haired, gray eyed fifth grade teacher, relegated Tyrone to a desk at the back of the room where she had him grade papers. However, one day she called out sick, and Pershing asked Tyrone to step in as a substitute. DePaulo's sick day turned into a sick week. For his part, Tyrone found that he absolutely loved teaching. The students rejoiced each day when they came to class and saw him. They bemoaned DePaulo's return. But it was short-lived. DePaulo quit after another week, suddenly thrust into the role of the teacher. Tyrone did his best to finish out the year using DePaulo's lesson plans. He thought he'd done a fairly decent job, but didn't really have a way of knowing. He unceremoniously turned onto their quiet street, then into their driveway. Keisha's jaw clenched. Though Tyrone had kept up with the home's landscaping, Keisha simply wasn't ready for the sight. She gripped his hand, squeezing. Baby, baby, you okay? He asked. Tears formed in her eyes. She shut them hard. Tyrone awkwardly turned off the ignition and reached across the center console pulling her in for an embrace. It's okay, baby, he said. It's gonna be all right. We're gonna get through this. She moaned between sobs, burying her face in his shoulder. I can't. I can't, she managed. The staff at the psych center had warned them this might happen. They called it deinstitutionalization, Patients like Keisha often reported overwhelming anxiety upon seeing the place they lived before they were committed. Keisha's home was the place she'd been when she'd learned of her daughter's disappearance. It was the place she'd languished and mentally deteriorated afterward. It was where she'd been when her boyfriend rejected her. And it was the place from which she launched an attack against her husband and a high-speed police chase. In short, it was a terrifying place. Let's pray, okay, baby? Tyrone said. He placed his forehead against hers and said, God, I pray that you would touch my wife's heart. Bring peace to her soul. Allow her to feel your love. Comfort her. Help her. Strengthen her. Walk with her. Help me to be the husband she need me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. He pulled away just long enough to gently kiss her forehead, then brought it back to hers. I love you, he said. I'm here for you, okay? Okay, she whispered. Gradually, her moaning ebbed, then the sobs. Tyrone shifted, bringing her head to his chest. He held her for a few more minutes silently. Okay, Keisha said, letting out a long, slow breath. I think I'm ready. Tyrone turned the key and opened the front door. She drew a deep breath and exhaled as he led her over the threshold. They entered, hands clasped. Keisha abruptly stopped. Tyrone turned to her. Her eyes scanned the entryway, living room and hallway. Suddenly she gasped. He braced, ready for another breakdown. What, what is it, he said. His thoughts raced. It hit him quickly. He'd redecorated the house with family photos that she'd taken down. I knew it. Shoulda left the pictures down. Dang, he thought. He was about to say sorry and take them down when Keisha said, You kept it clean. Tyrone stood stunned. Yeah, I mean. Wait, what you mean? I thought it was gonna look like a bachelor pad in here she said. What? She burst out laughing, then threw her arms around him. I trained you well, she said, smiling up at him, her green eyes captivating him. You really thought I was going to leave my dirty drolls all around, he asked. Nah, I knew I had a good man, she said. He leaned into her, kissing her. And I got the best woman. He barely got the words out when the sobs came. Sweetheart, "'Don't cry. I love you,' she said, wiping his moist eyes. "'I'm the one supposed to be crying.' "'I just... I'm just so glad to have you home, baby,' he said. "'Yeah?' she said coquettishly. "'How glad?' She took his hand and led him down the hallway toward their bedroom. And then Tyrone forgot that he'd been crying." thanks for listening to The Heart Speaks. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'll be back next week with another chapter. Until then, God bless and thank you. This is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental.